0: The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available for $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and this week we're going to be interviewing Jody McVeigh Schultz. So, we interviewed him as part of the team for Drunk History. And now we're going to be interviewing him about his feature film that he released. He directed, wrote, and cut this film, and it's called Echo Lake. So, the film is about a functioning, alcoholic, 30-year-old male who's estranged from his father who passes away. And in the the passing of his father, he inherits the family cabin. So, once he gets there, he sort of starts to re-examine his life and his childhood and his family. And how he's been sabotaging all these relationships so it's a really good film and you should definitely check it out Um, we actually have a few dates is currently doing the festival circuit you can check it out at Calgary so if you're in Calgary you can check it out Monday September 28th at 7 p.m. at the Calgary International Film Festival as well Jody will also be doing a Q&A I'm sure you can ask him about his uh, drunk history connection uh, he'll probably have a few answers for you. Of course, you can always check him out also on Saturday, October 3rd at 1pm at Globe Cinema. It's also in Calgary. Now, it'll also be in the St. Louis International Film Festival in early November, but the date hasn't been locked down just yet. Uh, so, you can check out more information about the film, as well as, more, as well as more dates for airing as they come up at echolakefilm.com. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with Jody McVeigh Schultz about his film Echo Lake. To start off, can you tell me how you got into film and and where you are today?
1: Back when I was in high school, my brother's six years older than me, and he would come home from college and he was taking film courses. And so he'd come home for the summers and then he'd show me all these old films. And so I remember seeing Cool Hand Luke and Bridge on River Kwai with him, like films that were just before my time, essentially and like just loving them. And so I just kind of knew at that point that I wanted to get in, I was always interested in storytelling and writing. So I just decided I want to get into film. And I took um, a summer course at Boston University, and then applied to USC. And I actually wasn't thinking I was going to go that far away. I'm from Philadelphia originally. But I got a scholarship there. And my dad was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, you have a scholarship offer. Don't make me like Mortgage the house because it's not the place you necessarily see yourself going. And he was right. I mean, to take on college loans like without having to would be really silly. And it was an amazing experience. And I think there are parts of USC that like, you know, it has a big Greek life and I wasn't into that. But there was also, it's a huge university and there are these amazing pockets of people that I've met. And, um, Stayed in touch with because we all stayed in the same city, which I think makes a huge difference as I started to get edit jobs And I started with kind of like random jobs and then got into reality TV that group from USC kept passing Edit jobs back and forth and that's kind of how we all got started and Yeah, so I was I was cutting uh, Reality for a while and and making really good money and kind of working my way up and being on these, you know more and more successful shows I was on Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which was pretty huge. And then Duck Dynasty, and I cut this episode that ended up, I think it had 11, like almost 12 million viewers. And so that like broke the all-time ratings record for cable reality. And so that was like really cool. And I was really enjoying like the people that I was working with there. But like the content, it just wasn't, at all my style of humor. It was really broad and kind of family friendly and not willing to get kind of weird. And we would always kind of push it there into the weird places. And then they would always rein us in. And I just realized like, you know, I enjoyed it, but I really didn't want to be doing that for the rest of my career. And if that was kind of like the height of success in a way, then like (laughs) there was a problem with my career trajectory essentially. And so at that point, I had a couple of friends who from USC had done the kind of directing path and a couple that had done kind of cinematography or whatever else. And so I knew people that were doing production and I, every once in a while I'd be on set with them. And so I just had this thought of like, well, I know that I want to make a very small film at some point. And I'm really into, you know, like mumblecore films and smaller films like I think. A lot of people dislike Mumblecore because it, it just like assumes that nothing really is going to happen. It's just going to be a bunch of really long conversations and no plot. And that's some of those type of films. But, you know, I, I guess I would say if you don't want to pigeonhole it, like I'm very interested in the whole spread of really low budget indie films that are smart, you know, smart indie films, then that can that's, you know, art house essentially like. Low budget that's non-genre, not non like specific blockbuster genre like horror or thriller or whatever. So I just I became really interested in those films and I knew that I wanted to and could make a film that worked on that level. You know, I wasn't trying to make like something that could win an Oscar, but I was trying to make something that I felt like I could do well that was really small. And so like a couple I remember I saw this film called Wadu Dem um, that won the LA Film Festival like in 2010, I want to say. And um, yeah, it's this film where this guy takes his cruise, his girlfriend dumps him right before he takes this cruise to Jamaica and he ends up going alone and like befriending all these weird people. And then he befriends these people in Jamaica and he's like getting high with them and they are supposed to watch his stuff and then they end up not watching his stuff and he gets his passport stolen. And it's this whole uh, adventure of him trying to like essentially hitch rides to Kingston to get his passport renewed. But it was that thing, like, I I saw those people speak after screening. It was that idea of, like, it was really an adventure. They stayed in hostels. They had, like, a five-person crew. They had all these people that they met. Like, their fixer plays a large role in the film. They improvised everything. I just really liked that idea of setting out to make this kind of adventure film. And that's part of what I was trying to do. I think almost to a detriment, I did that because it does make things really difficult when, you know, if we had shot in L.A. completely, it's certainly there's certain production aspects would have been easier. But then I would have lost what's essentially the most important thing in the film, which is this amazing production value that comes with being out in the middle of nowhere, shooting it on those, those hiking trails that we went to.
0: I'm assuming you've seen the film, yeah? Oh yeah, yeah. I watched it last night with my wife. Uh, she's very upset that he left the dog. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Some people are like, I cannot forgive him for that bullshit. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, he's a really tough character to like, for sure.
0: Well, and that and that's one of the things uh, on your site that you were you were talking about was that he's like a, an unlikable character. But I felt like the all his decisions aren't necessarily. Like he's not going he's not like shooting the dog or something because he doesn't like right. the dog. He's like, I can't take this dog up here. I'm gonna tie it up and finish I this mean, trip. It's it's yeah, like, he's, it's like not out of- <laughs>
1: he's he's just not good at being responsible. I think yeah. it's part of that. It's interesting because all this stuff happens after the dog is lost. Um, and I think for certain people watching it, they're like, Well, once the dog's lost, I'm only thinking about the dog <laughs> They're like everything else went in one ear, out the other. But but yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in unlikely protagonists. You know, like a lot of people just kind of assume that if you're going to have a protagonist that gets put into this conflict, that they have to be actively trying to solve that. And honestly, like when I'm making a movie or when even when I'm watching a movie, really all I want is to have people react realistically in the circumstances they're put in. And that's what I was going for. And a lot of times... If you are going to react realistically, you will show that you're maybe not the most likable person. And I was I'm interested in that. I, honestly, like I feel like, you know, with the current TV that's popular, complicated, if not completely like psychopathic characters, are kind of in vogue, and they're more interesting to watch. I mean, I think that's a good thing.
0: Well, what is it about unlikable characters that draws you to them?
1: Um. Well, I think because What it does to a viewer is, like, you're naturally, when you watch somebody's face for an entire movie, you're going to empathize with them, and then when you see that person do things that essentially you think are the wrong thing to do, like leave the dog, it puts you in a weird point of, like, emotional conflict, because on the one hand, you naturally want to empathize, and on the other hand, you now, this person that you're empathizing with is kind of... Doing the opposite of what you want them to do, which creates like a a conflict for the viewer uh, emotionally, which is just interesting to me.
0: It's funny that you would say that because one of my notes is creating emotions in the audience. And you see a lot of that in the writing here.
1: I'm also really interested in movies that are kind of uncomfortable to watch. I would say the ways in which my tastes tends to differ from other people is I'll come out of a movie and be like, Oh my God, that was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever seen. And I'll be like, and I loved it. (laughs) And other people tend to not have that kind of reaction when they're put in a really uncomfortable place by a film. Um, Like one of my favorite films is um, it's this French movie um, that's told backwards. It's told backwards And there's like a whole lot of violence that you are just made to watch, like in wide shots. There's like a really terrible, terrible rape scene that goes in kind of real time, and you're in this wide shot. And then I won't reveal the the twist of the movie, but it's told backwards. And the last scene is not a scene where something happens, but it gives you information that colors. Everything that's happened before that, but in real time, it happened after that. But in movie time, it happened. You saw it already. And that information, it's kind of like the I see dead people moment where you're like, you realize that Bruce Willis is a ghost. (laughs) Um, So it's like that moment, but in a much more kind of like character driven, less plotty way. That's very powerful. And just, like, that movie is super uncomfortable to watch. And it's not the type of movie you're going to, like, pop in every weekend. But it's just so powerful to me because they're willing to make you uncomfortable. And, you know, uncomfortableness can be about shot choice. It can be about content. It can be about the way a character is reacting or treating other people in be like any.
0: Well, it's funny because, like, I think about... Um you know, do the right thing. When I watched that, I came out and I was like, I hated that movie. And I was like angry. <laughs> and it wasn't until like a month or two later that I was like, oh, I didn't hate the movie. I was just really pissed off and like angry at the right. situation within it. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about your sort of director's write-up that you put on your webpage, you talk about mm-hmm. wanting challenges, essentially. But right. you see so many people sort of rejecting the idea of challenges and wanting to just go see Transformers or something like that. Right why do you think that is within our sort of culture? Why why aren't we wanting to be challenged?
1: I think a lot of people do. I think that the issue is that if you have something that's a little bit oblique or tough to understand, that you have a less broad audience. And so people are afraid of that because, look, if you were just going by success is making money then this film wouldn't be considered very successful because I really hope to make some money on it but it's not the type of movie that is going to be seen by large swaths of kind of generic audiences but that said I think essentially everything in our world is kind of nicheifying. yeah if that that's definitely a created word that doesn't <laughs> exist but but when you it's like the long tail have you heard of the concept of long tail uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so right. So I think everything because of the Internet is going in a long tail direction. And so what you end up having is there are people that want to watch things that are intellectually challenging, that make you pay attention. Like, I think one of the best things that a filmmaker can do early on in a film is to just not explain certain things. Because what happens is you're solving a puzzle when you watch a film, especially early on and trying to figure out what's going on what are the circumstances and you know a blockbuster movie is essentially just going to list those out there are like entire parody montages dedicated to like oh we're building a team now or like what what, and just like the stupid ways in which exposition is doled out and i mean my goal in writing in the edit after we had shot all that stuff was to make it so that not everything is obvious. I mean, that whole opening segment of the letter, not knowing what that conversation with the brother in the bathroom is about. Um, it's all trying to set up this essentially suspense around what is really going on in his life. Cause he's clearly has something fucked up going on, but we're never addressing it directly until he opens that letter and you see that his dad's, died and you realize like all this other shit that's kind of you know going on in his head that informs what you were watching and honestly that stuff takes a while to develop and you're not really sure what's going on and in fact we did we we cut down the open I think that one of the notes when I was editing it was like get to the cabin quicker but I do like holding that suspense of like what is this sort of Backstory of this letter and this other person and yeah,
0: all that. What I find interesting about that was that it's he's also essentially a broken person and you know he's his relationships are all sort of fragments or fragmented and broken in some way. Mm-hmm. And that's sort yeah. of him trying to come back and and figure things out and what have you. And at one point, I think the female character who comes later, Christy. Mm-hmm. Christy. Yeah. Um, she makes a pass at him. And what was your reasoning behind sort of him rejecting that? Because all his relationships back at home are broken or gone in a sense for as far as we know. So what was the
1: part of it for me was he is always taking the easy way out in every situation in throughout the whole movie. He never kind of says no to the thing he wants most immediately. And so I needed him to, not just accept the thing he wanted in that moment, you know? Um, And part of it was about this idea of him still feeling this connection with um, his girlfriend who kicked him out of her apartment. So, yeah, I mean, there was actually like talk of whether he should go out in the boat and whatever. And we'd have like a scene with them together. But for me, I don't know. I always stuck with this idea that he has to say no to the easiest, like to his id essentially. Um, and and yeah, then the scene after, which is a really kind of small scene that's a flashback after that they leave and where the him and, and his ex are together And like laughing about him wanting to fart underneath the covers Uh, like that to me is meant to subtly explain like where his head's at and this idea of like, yes, he could make out with this girl that he just met, but he has this whole history with this person and maybe he doesn't want to give up on that yet
0: and it's interesting to see that his relationship with his his girlfriend and and sort of i guess from an editing standpoint i'm wondering how you went about structuring that relationship so that we get the sense that this is sort of the last straw right when he leaves her like because there was sort of it's it's executed quickly because it needs to get us to the the cabin so how did you approach cutting that was there more to that to that relationship or was it shot that way
1: no so we we shot it that way there was more to the night out at the bar we essentially shot the whole thing where he's at the bar and she's texting him um and being like where the fuck are you and he essentially just ignores her texts and we felt like that could be implied by him coming back and i like the smash cut from them offering him you know hey let's get one drink and then smash cut to him coming home, and you don't know if he went or not, but it's you can kind of figure it out pretty quickly. Again, it's that kind of like solving this puzzle and like the way he says hello to the dog and everything and the fact that her door is locked. You get it pretty quickly. But that was how it was developed, and I think actually I had more exposition that was laid out in their dialogue, and I actually went through... I, I felt like that scene where they have their first argument before he leaves was pretty tricky partly because i did want to lay out like oh this is what you always do and like lay out that they'd had this argument a bunch of times and all this stuff and then i even had a line in there at one point about that he owed her back rent a couple months to explain that it was her place all this stuff and what ended up happening is it was just force feeding exposition in this really obvious way and i got a lot of notes in the edit that were was just like this, I can feel the writer dropping these bits of exposition. And if you just don't worry about telling all the information, that people can infer things, and they don't need to know the entire backstory. And I like I thought that was a really good note. And it's tough as a writer to know when stuff is seems too obvious, essentially, when you're hitting people over the head. But so you really have to trust people that are giving you notes. And so my co-producer, who was also the DP, gave me notes. My brother, who is an associate producer. And then the most solid creative voice was Sam, the lead, who is also the writer-director. So, yeah, I really like movies that don't give you context. And then you are forced to figure out the context via stuff. And you maybe won't know the context in full for multiple scenes because that is kind of You know, that's kind of this new style of you do almost like verite style filmmaking. Uh, Joe Swanberg is a guy who does essentially mumblecore films that have this really like you're a fly on the wall and he's not storytelling in any classic sense. He's storytelling in a like you are watching a fly on the wall documentary with long takes and it's just very realistic and you connect with it in a way because it feels so real and he's not beating you over the head with anything, shoving any exposition in your face and you have to kind of figure stuff out. And the, the realizations are kind of smaller, you know? They're like, you realize something about this relationship or you realize they're not like big M. Night Shyamalan realizations. But I like that. I'm interested in small details in movies. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of what, The idea was, and I think it's, this is done more in a classical storytelling way. Like, I wouldn't say that this is that similar to a Joe Swanberg movie, but there's elements of that. Like, I didn't just hold on a wide shot in every scene, but there's times where it makes sense to just hold on a wide shot and let everything progress and not move the story quickly forward. And then there's times where you need a five second scene and and you get a little blip and then you move on, so... Yeah, it was a balance,
0: for sure. Well, I was going to bring up that the pacing is deliberately slow in this, in terms of, like, we're not rushing in any way. So from an editing standpoint, how did you structure this film to ensure that we don't get bored on a moment or anything like that? Uh, Especially since you're also the director and the writer, which you might want to hold on to something. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's hard. I mean, to be perfectly honest, when I watched this movie, I... I'm still like, oh, you could pace this up. You could pace this up. And what, what I have to remind myself is that people that are watching it for the first time are going to be okay with hanging in these moments that take a while, be, partly because what that allows an audience member to do is to, to essentially like allow their own thoughts into the process. Like If you're just watching an action film and the entire time you're just trying to keep up with What's visually going on? What's the plot now? Just it's all happening a mile a minute. Um, You really don't get a moment to like actually contemplate how you feel about what you're seeing on screen. You know, I mean, there's even a moment where (laughs) it might be a little manipulative, but they're talking about, um, you know, that feeling when you have total realization of your own mortality. Right. And I feel like everybody has experienced that kind of like moment of panic when you are like fully conscious of it because we don't think about it 99.9% of our lives but there are moments where you're fully conscious of your own mortality and how terrifying that is and like there's that moment where they're talking about that and there's a pause and like the hope is that it's it provides that moment a little bit for the audience which is a little bit shitty of me to do (laughs) that's part of what, you know, should be powerful about this film. is like, you know, coming face to face with your own mortality. And yeah, like, especially when he's hiking, there's like those long shots of just him out there. And yeah, I mean, it is the idea is to allow the audience to consider that stuff and to, to think about the framing and like what it means that he's like this ant speck. In this giant, this world that's been around for millions of years, you know, and and this idea of like this really temporary little speck in this kind of uncaring, you know, forever volcanic thing.
0: Well, I was going to say nature plays essentially a character in this film. Yeah, yeah. How did you approach using your environment to inflict I guess or guide the characters
1: well a couple of things so our DP this is amazing guy Andy Radziewski
0: gorgeous gorgeous shots establishing yeah shots.
1: yeah and just the way in which he had this idea of saying long lens in LA and have it be this kind of like soft focus really almost claustrophobic and then when he gets out into nature to like really open it up we use much shorter lenses and you really get this sense like we use these expansive wides i really like the shot where he's on the top of that rock and he's about to jump in and it's like they're in the corner of the frame sort of the yeah upper corner. and you just get this this sense of there's so much more to the frame than just his mind and yeah the idea with that was that it's it's kind of, you know, like a lot of people said, the healing power of nature. And I think that's kind of like a cliche and cheesy. But this idea of when you're alone in this completely different place from your normal world, that uh, it just changes your thinking. And so, yeah, the idea is that it it is this character that kind of uh, imposes on him and forces him to kind of reexamine certain things. And the cabin is very similar in that way.
0: That's sort of how I saw it, right? Is that even in the cabin, he's surrounded by woods and like almost claustrophobic and enclosed on him and everywhere he goes, it's not really open. And even when he gets into the canoe, he lies down inside it. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, So he's sort of, you know, in this environment is really putting pressure on him.
1: It's really effective, like on a large screen, when he lies down into the cabin and enters the frame upside down just because it's very much you're like this is where his mind state is he's completely upside down but yeah I mean that so that place that we went it's up it's in Lassen National Park and it's uh it's this national park where my dad's extended family has this cabin and then the national park is kind of bought up land around them, but they got to keep their cabin on this like hundred year trust essentially. Oh wow. So yeah, we have like three full extended families that go up and use that over the summer. So I hiked that to the cinder cone um, when I was, I want to say like early twenties. And I just heard stories about my dad and uncles going together. And it just was kind of like this bizarre thing that we'd seen from mountaintops, but I'd never been to And that hike is just so strange. And we did, we stayed true to like the chronology of that hike where it starts this really lush mountainy spot. And then you go through this like bizarre burned out forest alongside that lake. And then all of a sudden you're into these, they call the, the thing that he has to scramble over the fantastic lava beds. And then there's this cinder desert. Like it, it's the most insane and immediate change of just kind of topography and the feeling of the space you're in that I've ever experienced. And so for me, that was really important and it was so personal to go up there and be in that space that, you know, our family knows so well that I wanted to to do something up there. And it also for production reasons, it made it easier because, you know, we didn't have to cast a bunch of extras <laughs> or whatever else. And it, and it provided this production value that I was talking about, but it also Produced a bunch of challenges, not the least of which was the fact that we had to actually hike out there. And so. How'd your cameraman do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a beast. Uh, Andy, the, the DP, handled it. And then we also had essentially like swinging grip electric AC, who they were amazing. And uh, then we had a couple other people that just like really pushed themselves our sound guy was like i'm not a hiker but <laughs> he, he manned up and was amazing and yeah so yeah i mean that was really hard and we did that the first two days so that was like nuts you know every once in a while i would be like huh there's probably some place we could have just driven to and done it more like a normal shoot but that hiking scene in a lot of ways makes the
0: movie you know it's like him being on mars i have one last uh, question for you and and i asked my question that i usually ask editors yeah right. yesterday when we did the interview for or two days ago when we did the interview for drunk history so i guess can you tell me what's next on your radar as a director Huh? so i'm
1: writing right now yeah i have two scripts that i'm currently writing one is more of a straight up comedy because i'm now in this world of drunk history I'm getting to know all these people uh, and it seems like the ideal way that I could to kind of break into one of the higher tier festivals. And I have actually friends who just got into South by Southwest last year um, with a film with Adam Pally and uh, Rosa Salazar called Night Owls. And they got one person and Adam Pally, who's been on a bunch of sitcoms and stuff and he was just really excited about it. And all of a sudden now they have like, you know, two days with Tony Hale and Rob Hubel's in it and, you know, Peter Krauss. So they did this really simple film, but they got great people in it and they got into South by. And it's, it's, you know, a dramedy essentially, but there is all this comedy to it. And I think, feel like that works this, you know, my film, I I say it's a drama comedy, but it's really a drama with some really subtle comedic moments in there. I'm working on a a straight-up comedy about a guy who gets kind of blackmailed over Skype and ends up trying to blackmail the blackmailer. And, yeah, it's like a... It, I'm thinking it'll end up being kind of like a, a more realistic but equally weird, like, kind of Big Lebowski-esque double con sort of heist thing with Bumbling Idiots. Uh, and then the other one is uh, the script that... More of a straight drama, which will... I'm still kind of feeling out where I'm in the um, outlining stage, but how it's going to work. But the idea would be it's told through the lens of this, it's almost found footage esque. So it's told through the lens of this uh, reality show following cops. Um, and I worked on one of those myself, and everybody's seen cops and the way that kind of works. And so it's very much just like fly on the wall, cinema verite style. And then on the other side, you would see, like, essentially the raw footage from a documentary being done about, like, a youth organizer in, in this same community. And so you'd see the two sides of... Like, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in how police interactions with communities work um, and why they're so terrible in the U.S. right now. Cool, Matt. Well, thank you very
0: much for letting me interview
1: you. Sure, man. Thank you.
0: So that was my interview with Jody. Remember, if you want to check out our... Drunk History podcast, you can go to aotg.com slash history. Uh, if you want to check out Jody's film, you can go to it in Calgary or St. Louis at the upcoming dates in Calgary on September 28th and October 3rd and in St. Louis it's going to be announced very shortly, so you can check that out at echolakefilm.com I'd like to thank Jody for taking the time to allow me to interview him. I'm Gordon Burkell Thanks for listening